Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Schubert. I'm another one of the elders here at Harbor. We're glad you're with us on this Lord's Day to worship together. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of First Samuel, and we're in chapter 25 this morning. And what we've, uh, where we're at in this context of the book is uh, seeing uh, intense opposition uh, to David, God's chosen king from his enemies. Uh, last chapter, what we saw is uh, looking at David's response to Saul, his enemy, who's trying to keep David from, uh, from taking the throne. Uh, next chapter, we're going to see again an instance where David's enemy, Saul, is trying to again uh, come after him. And here in the middle, we find ourselves in chapter 25, where David encounters an enemy of a different kind, a guy named Nabal. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. That when Jesus talks about his people and the way that we respond and interact with our enemies, we are given uh, a great opportunity. A great opportunity, Jesus says, to resemble and reflect our Heavenly Father. Listen to what, what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You have heard it, that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love, love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, so what we want to do is take that teaching of Jesus, of the unique opportunity that we have to reflect our heavenly Father when we're encountering and interacting with our enemies, and see how that applies to this particular passage that we're looking at this morning. Um, and uh, uh, kids, if you want to keep track of the, the, the words this morning, what we're going to see is that uh, in this type of conflict, as the, the children of God, we are to, uh, the words that I want you to, to, to listen for are honor, trust, and submit. Honor, trust, and submit, uh, because as God's people, we are to honor God as our Father, trust God as our Father, and to submit to God as our Father. So if you would, look with me, chapter 25 of the book of 1 Samuel. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, it's on page 247. This passage is going to start off with a short blurb mentioning the death of Samuel, God's prophet. Kind of leaves us with the question. We saw David respond in an incredibly God-glorifying way last week in the way that he responds to his enemies. What is he going to do now? Now that God's prophet is not alive, is David going to continue to walk faithfully with God as his father? So, if you would... Look with me. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Uh, it's a little bit of a lengthy read, but we are going to hear from God's Word. Uh, so, follow along. Beginning there in verse 1. Now Samuel died, 
And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them stopped on, strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. When Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sails of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed all that, of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell uh, before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, 
my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the, of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, Yahweh struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Yahweh has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him for his, as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy uh, that you would uh, reveal yourself to us in your creation. That even more so, you would reveal yourself to us in your word. And on top of that, that you would reveal yourself fully in the person of Christ. Uh, We pray this morning that as your people, we would hear from you, from your word. You would sanctify us in truth, that you would make us more like Christ as we await the coming of his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. 
So what we want to look at as we work our way through this chapter is that we are to honor God as our Father, we are to trust God as our Father, and we are to submit to God as our Father. First, let's look and see uh, how this passage calls us to honor God as our Father. Because uh, we need to be very careful in doing this because many times when we focus on our own honor... It can be a great harm to ourselves and to, to others. We found out just a few months ago when Lindsay's grandmother died that back in her uh, genealogy, uh, on, her, on her mom's side, she had a, uh, a relative whose name was Jonathan Longfellow Silly. He was a, a congressman from Maine. And uh, he uh, had a grudge with a newspaper editor who was writing a lot about what Congress was talking about at that time that had to do with rechartering the second bank of the U.S. And so what he said is that the only reason that this newspaper editor was writing what he was writing about the the bank was because he had gotten $52,000 of a loan. Well, the newspaper editor received that as uh, a remark that was bringing dishonor to him. And so he did what only any man would do who was concerned about his honor in the time, challenged him to a duel. So he sent a congressman from Kentucky to deliver his message that I am challenging you to a duel to defend my honor. And Jonathan Silly ignored it. He's like, I'm not going to bother my time with this man. Well, that congressman from Kentucky received his denial of this challenge to the duel as an assault against his honor. And so then and there, he challenged Jonathan Silly to another duel and said, let's go. And so Jonathan Silly thought, well, I can't dishonor this guy. And so he accepts his challenge to the duel. This happened in D.C. So they couldn't, you could challenge somebody to a duel in D.C., but you couldn't have a duel in D.C. And so they went over to Maryland and had this duel. First shot, they both missed. Second shot, they both missed. Third shot, Jonathan Silly gets shot and he dies. That led all of his uh, friends in Congress to pass a law that not only can you not have a duel in D.C. anymore, because of Jonathan Silly's death, you can no longer even challenge anyone to a duel in D.C. But notice how foolish this was. His name wasn't spelled S-I-L-L-Y, but how silly is that? You're Being so consumed with your honor has brought an end to your life. I think he was like 32 or 35 years of age. He's no longer able to serve the people that he was representing. He left three kids and a wife behind. The danger of this was also he could have harmed this other man and ruined or taken his life. The The ramifications of this spread through his life generation after generation, because he was no longer alive. You see, when we're focused on our own honor to the exclusion of God's honor, it can bring great pain and destruction. And do we not see this in this passage? How David is focused not on the honor of God as his father, but on his own honor. Uh, Notice how this Uh, comes up. First, uh, both David and uh, the servant later recount how David, with a shepherd's mind, as he's 
in exile, having fleed from Saul, he and his men are out in the fields around Carmel. He sees Nabal's shearers and his uh, shepherds taking care of the, the flock, and he makes sure that they're protected from marauding bands of traveling bandits, from uh, animals or whatever. And he tells them there in, uh, in verse 7, I hear you have shears. Your shepherds have been with us. We did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were with us in Carmel. And then again, when the servant recounts to uh, Abigail what's going on, notice what he says about David and his men and their actions. Uh, he says, the men were very good down in verse 15. We suffered no harm. We didn't miss anything when they were in the fields as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while, we were with them keeping the sheep. Uh, David, there was not necessarily any sort of agreement between him and Nabal, but he made sure that Nabal's flocks and his shepherds were protected. And we already read how rich he was. He had a vast herd of sheep that he was able to benefit through all of the shearing that was about to happen. Uh, read somebody who was doing the math. It would have been close to the average weight of the wool that they would have taken off of one sheep at that time due to all the sheep that Nabal had. It would have been uh, close to three tons of wool that he would have sheared at this time. He was an extremely rich man, and David provided for that to happen. But what is Nabal's response to David's kindness? Notice in uh, verse... Uh, sorry, over here in chapter 25, in verse 10, David sends these, these messengers to Nabal in his name, so they're representatives of David. Therefore, they should have been received by Nabal as being receiving David himself. And notice how he responds in verse 10. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give to men who come from I don't know where? Uh, Nabal here disrespects David, not just by refusing to help him and his men, uh, but notice here he's also refusing to recognize David's place as the one anointed by God who is to be king. He just calls him a servant who's fleeing from his master. Here he's dishonoring not only David, but also he's honoring God, which we'll touch on later. But David even receives it as this in verse 39. We see that David calls it an insult, what Nabal has done. But notice David's response. Look how he responds to this act of dishonor in verse 13. News comes back, they tell David in verse 12, and he says, every man strapped on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up with David. How much of a contrast is this from what we saw before? The patience, the kindness, the good that David extended to Saul over and over. But here, as Nabal responds to his goodness with evil, David is ready to take him out. Over in verse 20, uh, uh, 22, notice what uh, David says that he's, he's pledging to do in verse 21. Surely in vain I've guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness... 
so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by mourning I leave so much as one man of all who belong to him. David is ready to wipe out an entire community. Notice the language that's used there. He returned me evil for good. That's the same language that we saw in the last chapter in David and Saul describing their interactions. David returning good for Saul's evil over and over. And you remember another account of someone who, due to an offense against him, perceived of, of himself, decides, we're going to go to a village and we're going to wipe out everybody in the village due to this offense. That was Saul and his response to wipe out the priests of Nob. Isn't it interesting that here in this passage, because David is so consumed with his own honor, and he's not honoring God as his father, who is the one that he's resembling? David is more resembling Saul in this instance, isn't he? Who's, who's eager to return evil for evil, who is eager at the slightest offense to go and slaughter an entire community of men due to this rejection. Remember what uh, Jesus has said. When your enemies respond to you with evil, you're to bless them. You're to respond with grace and mercy. For in doing so, you will be sons of your God, your Father in heaven. It's it's the way that we respond to our enemies that we bring honor to our God, our Father, as we reflect Him, as we resemble Him, as we demonstrate His goodness and His character to the nations. Here, David, as the king who is to come, he's supposed to be the ideal Israelite. If anyone is in the community is to reflect the priorities, the character of the Heavenly Father, it should be the King. And what we do is we see David setting a terrible example. He is resembling Saul. He is resembling the nations. In fact, he's acting more like Nabal. David is more concerned with his own honor than the honor of his Heavenly Father. David is, is as if he's saying, I am willing to bring dishonor to my God if it means I maintain my own honor. If I maintain and, and secure respect and favor in the eyes of others. Do you ever struggle with the same things? I doubt I've ever, this has ever come out of your mouth or been heard in your house when someone has offended you or spoken evil against you, strap on your swords! I don't think I've said that at least in the past week once to the kids for us all to strap them on and go down the street to smite some offending person. Lindsay might like to sometimes with the loud trucks that drive in front of her house, maybe. But how often in our hearts is that the attitude that is there? You've disrespected me. You've spoken ill of me. You've misrepresented me. 
to my face in words in print? How often and how quick are you on the computer to strap on your sword and send out some uh, just battle and response to someone's comments about you? Forgetting that you are a son, you are a daughter of your Father in heaven who's to respond to your enemies with blessing, not curse. This can happen uh, uh, in other ways as we're more concerned with our own honor than the honor of others. It, it, It also happens with some things that we're maybe afraid to say sometimes. Have you ever been afraid because of what someone may think of you? Or if they might laugh at you, or they might reject you to speak up and do what is right, to share the gospel in the context of your church or your school, to resemble and reflect your Heavenly Father for fear that someone may laugh at you, for fear that someone may not like you, for fear that someone may talk about you. In that moment, when we are keeping quiet, We're more concerned with our own honor than the honor of our God. Uh, Other times it may uh, go the other way in uh, in things that we that we say and speak as uh, interacting with those who are resembling more the the character of uh, the the nations or the character of, uh, of the evil one in this world, those who have rejected God, uh, we, being afraid of being dishonored or rejected, will continue to speak and talk and act and interact with them in the same ways. Laughing at those jokes, telling those jokes, participating in the same business practices, by doing that, we're more concerned with our own honor than the honor of our Heavenly Father. But, but think about this. Who is the perfect king? Who is the perfect son, the perfect man, who in every way represented perfectly His Heavenly Father? How did Jesus, the true king, respond to His enemies? When they reviled against him, when they sought to slaughter and kill him, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. You see, if Jesus was not concerned with the honor of his heavenly Father and seeking to demonstrate His grace and His mercy in the world to suffer and die for enemies, then none of us could even be having this conversation. Because it wouldn't even be fathomable or possible for us to think about reflecting and honoring the Creator of this world whom we've rebelled against as our Father. What mercy! What grace! Do you see the privilege we have to not react in seeking vengeance from our enemies, but to love them? Why? Because we've been loved in that way from our Father. We have the opportunity to honor Him in those situations. But it's not just that we get to honor God as our Father. We're also called to trust God as our Father. 
Harris is about three, he's over three now, uh, years old. And it seems like uh, he's reflecting my impatience more and more as he gets older. And so uh, when he gets hungry and comes in and asks his father for something to eat, uh, if I don't get it right away, tears start coming. He's incredibly offended. It's as if he thinks, you don't care for me anymore. Don't you see what I need? Don't you see what I want? I'm hungry. I want chicken nuggets. Make them immediately. Even if I tell him, hold on. I, oh, you got to wait. You got to be patient. They got to cook. No, they got to cook. Then we got to get them out of the oven. They have to cool off. Sometimes I've walked in and seen him in his impatience and his lack of trust of his father climbing up to the hot pan of nuggets to get them before it's time. What can happen as a result of his mistrust of me? Am I withholding anything good from him? No. I'm seeking to give him something good in the right time and to prevent him from being harmed. I will give him exactly what he needs, but he must wait and he must trust his Heavenly Father. You and, and me, many times we're just like that in our response to our Heavenly Father, questioning whether he really has our best interest in mind. Because if he did, why would we have to be waiting? Why don't you give me what I want now? I don't want to wait on you. Don't you care? We throw spiritual temper tantrums like three-year-olds. We doubt his goodness. Do you see David doing that here? Failing to trust his God? Think about how long he's been waiting. How long has Saul been pursuing him? How long ago has it been when God has said, you are going to be the king? How long is he having to flee when this man is coming after his life day in and day out and is not giving up? Maybe he's tired of waiting. Samuel's gone now. Who am I going to turn to? Am I going to hear from you anymore? Samuel's gone. Now maybe I've got to, have to take matters into my own hands because I don't really know if I can trust you. Notice, Abigail, she comes to talk to David. And the things that she points out to David isn't just that what he is about to do is taking of innocent blood, of bloodshed. Notice that is part of it in verse 31, that it would be shedding blood without cause, what David would be doing. But notice what she mentions over and over, that what David is about to do that flows out of his lack of trust as God is his father. Look in verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as Yahweh lives, let your, and, and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. That language is repeated over and over. Look in verse 31. She says it again. My Lord, have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. 
And then as David comments back on it in verse 33, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you for you have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. You see, just as big a deal isn't the, is, as the slaughtering of an entire village is this issue and this sin that David is wrestling with, this temptation in his own heart because he's not trusting God, is that I must save myself. I must work out my own deliverance because I don't trust that God cares. I don't trust that he sees what I'm going through. I don't trust that he is going to do what I ultimately need. What about you? What about me? Do you have those questions? Are there places in your heart right now of things that you've been going through for longer than you can remember? And you've prayed over and over and over again, asking God to bring about deliverance, to change those situations, to change those circumstances. And the answer is, wait, I will be with you. But do you ever get tired of that? I don't want to wait. I want change to happen. I want this suffering and this struggle to go away. All right, God, I've asked and I've prayed long enough. And if you're not going to do anything about it, then I guess I have to step in. Because I see, it looks like there's only one person who cares about me and what I'm going through, and it's not you. Maybe for you, what it looks like to work salvation for yourself isn't the strapping on of a sword and going to slaughter people, but it's getting control. Because everything else in my world is outside of my hands, but I need to feel safe and secure like I have a handle on what's going on and I'm going to work salvation for myself by at least working out one area in my life where I am in control of everything. Maybe for you it looks like getting your house in complete order and so you're constantly just cleaning because it's chaos and destruction everywhere else, but you've got to work salvation somewhere and it's going to come through the work of your own hands in your, in your home. Maybe, maybe for you, it's the, the intensity with which you focus on your athletic pursuits of working countless hours to perfect your swing or your dribbling abilities and skills, or to make sure that you can run faster, longer than anybody else. Because you think the only way that I'm going to make it and that I'm going to found salvation or that I'm going to provide for myself is through my achievement in athletics and I'm going to do whatever it takes to find glory, acceptance, success, get to college. Maybe it just finds itself an escape. I don't really think I can save myself, but I can find an hour or three to where I don't have to think about anything. And so I'm going to just plunge myself into uh, binging a whole season on Netflix or beating this entire video game in one afternoon or day. Because as long as I do this and I can numb my thoughts and not have to think about what's going on, is that not the same thing? 
working salvation for ourselves by our own hands instead of trusting in our God and His promises? Notice, that's actually the solution that Abigail brings to David. David, don't trust in yourself. Don't seek salvation by your own hand. But she points him to the trustworthy, faithful character of his God. Look in verse 28, what she says. Now then, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving yourself with your own uh, hand, now then let the enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Uh, and even as she... Uh, sorry, it's in verse 28. Um, she says, Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. And as the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation with himself. Notice where she points him. Back to God's promises. David, what has God promised you? But that you will be king and he will make you a house. Remember the faithfulness and the words that God has revealed to you that He will bring this about. You don't have to work salvation for yourself because the covenant God is your God. And your life, notice what He says, your life is bound up in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. It's a picture here of the shepherd's stones that are in a bag, bound up, close, in care, and protected by the shepherd. Notice the language that she uses there. That your God is caring for you. It might not always look like it, David. I know Nabal can be a pain in the neck. I've lived with him a long time. Saul has been after you. You may doubt and wonder whether God really cares or whether he will do something about your enemies, but she points him over and over to the promises of God. And she reminds him that God will do according to all the good that he has spoken. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your God and his promises are faithful and true? Do you believe that he has your best interest in mind? Do you believe that he is for you? Because if He is for you, then who can be against you? How do you know that He cares for you? How do you know that you can trust Him? Because He did not even withhold His own Son. He says, wait. Trust Me. Even if your enemies prevail, I will ultimately vindicate you. In fact, that's what David points to later in verse 39. Blessed be Yahweh who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. And we need to be careful. God has not pledged to you that every insult that you receive that he will avenge. 
You get cut off going on the way home from church. Do not rest in God's promises that that person will drop down dead before they finish their lunch this afternoon. David is the anointed one. The the offense against David was also a direct assault against God and his kingdom. There are other things there, but the principle still remains that we are to entrust ourselves to our God who has defeated our chief enemy of sin and death on the cross and will ultimately bring all of his enemies to justice. But we wait because we trust in the one who has given his life for us. So we honor God as Father. We trust God as Father. And lastly, we, we submit to God as Father. Notice, it's Abigail who comes, but notice what David says, how he receives and interprets Abigail's coming to him. Look in verse 32. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come out to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. David sees and understands Abigail's coming to him as being sent by the Lord. He says that through her words, God is restraining his actions. She actually says the same thing a couple of times, talking about the fact that it is God who is restraining David from what he is doing over in verse 26. So recognize that Abigail is God's means of disciplining, of restraining David, of reproving him, of exposing to him his sin and the temptations that he's facing, and correcting and calling him to faithfulness and walking with God. And you notice David's response? He listens to her, and he praises his God that in his mercy and his grace, he would send someone to David to expose his sin. How contrary is that to how we saw Saul respond? Remember what happened when Jonathan came and tried to expose to Saul his sin? How did Saul respond? He picks up a spear, curses Jonathan, and tries to kill him. But David here is humbled. When God exposes his sin, he's quick to repent and to celebrate God's grace that he would pursue and discipline him. We're going to see this comes up later in David's life with the sin with Bathsheba. Or when David's sin is exposed, where he doesn't stop that time, he actually goes all the way through with his murderous intents. But when Nathan exposes David's sin, he doesn't seek to kill Nathan, but he repents immediately before his God. We actually see shadows of this sin beginning to show itself in David's life. Did you notice at the end of the chapter when David starts taking on wife after wife after wife? We'll see how this develops later on. That's contrary to God's intention, but it later serves to be part of David's downfall. But here, in this moment, David receives the rebuke of his God with humility. What about you? What about me? How do you respond when someone exposes your sin and calls you out 
and points you to the correct way of living in conformity with the Scriptures. Do you celebrate that as being a blessing from your Heavenly Father? Do you celebrate and thank the person that they would be demonstrate kindness and love to expose your sin? Or are you like me many times? Your first reaction is defensiveness. Is to justify your actions. Is to prove why maybe they were wrong and you were in the right. You see, if we're to be sons and daughters of our Father in Heaven, then we need to submit to Him as our Father who comes to us in His love and is in His, in His discipline. Because He's disciplining us because He loves us. He's disciplining you because you are His legitimate children. Hebrews tells us, if you weren't legitimate, He wouldn't care how you were living. But hear and know this, this morning, you've already experienced the grace and mercy of your God because He has called you, His people, to confession. And it may be that this afternoon and over the course of your life and community in the context of our congregation, that myself or one of the elders, or your brother or sister in Christ, God will use them as a means to rebuke you, to point out God's in, His good design for you and your life. Are you preparing now that your response to your Heavenly Father would be one of submission? Through Christ, you've been set free from sin. Don't enslave yourself to it anymore. Walk in the freedom that your Heavenly Father has given you. This is the good news of the Gospel. The Creator that you've rebelled against has called you to be His sons and daughters. We're His children. Let's honor God as our Father. Let's trust God as our Father. And let's submit to God as our Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that You did every bit of what was necessary to redeem and secure our salvation. Uh, We thank You uh, that now we have the privilege of adoption as the sons of God through Your work. Move in our hearts. Continue to demonstrate and make us more like Yourself that we would honor, trust, and submit to our Heavenly Father. In Christ's name, Amen.